15. Let's run to 15. Proverbs 19 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. And he who hurries his footsteps errs. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friends. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. All the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. The king's wrath is like a roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. House and wealth are in the inheritance. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Laziness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you teach us again, Lord, to Lord, walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, though we know that our salvation is based solely upon his finished work, his blood and his righteousness, yet, Lord, we know that his grace within us is not, it is not powerless, but rather it is very powerful. And Lord, it raises us to new life. And it causes us to walk in the pathway of your commandments. And so, Lord, we pray that you would establish us in obedience to you. And that, Lord, you might teach us the way that is good and pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs 19.1 says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Here, in this present world and in this present life, but certainly in the minds of most men, one of the greatest evils and one of the most, un- uh, mo- most positions to be avoided in this life is to be in a position of poverty. This is something that men dread, that they do not want to have this condition in this life. And yet the Bible is teaching us that there is something that is worse than physical poverty and that it is better to be poor and have integrity than to be rich and perverse in speech and to be a fool, right? A man may be poor and yet be wise, and a man may be rich and yet a fool. And the poor man who is righteous is far superior to the rich man who is a fool, right? It is better to be poor in this present world and rich toward God, rich in faith, having the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, than to be rich in this present world and to be bereft of any of the blessings of salvation, to be spiritually poor, not in the sense that one has an understanding of their sin. That type of spiritual poverty is good. But whenever one is not rich in faith, and they're not rich in terms of uh, being reconciled to God, then they are truly destitute of anything spiritual. They are in a position of spiritual poverty of deprivation and they are even in a worse position than a poor man physically or materially who does have salvation now the greatest example of this in the bible is the rich man in lazarus 
the rich man in Lazarus is given to teach us this principle, this truth. Because the rich man who feasted sumptuously, who was clothed in all these fine clothings, right? who had this very uh, nice life, an opulent life, a life of luxury and of all the comforts that can come about because of riches, yet when he died, he went to a place of misery. And there he was being tormented in the lake of fire. But the poor man, Lazarus, who in this life was so poor, so destitute of anything material or anything good, that he would just desire to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And yet in the life to come, his role was reversed. And there he was being comforted, and he was in this position of spiritual and eternal bliss and prosperity. So this is what the Bible is teaching, that there is more to this life than a man's possessions, right? And what he owns. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Verse 2. Also, it is not good for a person to be without knowledge. He who hurries his footsteps errs. It is not good to be without knowledge. Now this knowledge has to be knowledge of God, knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ, knowledge of the will of God and how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. The knowledge that is given to us in the word of God and a knowledge that we obtain by faith, right? We have to believe these things. There are many people who have some conceptual knowledge of the Bible and of what the Bible teaches. They may know the history of the Bible. They may even know some of the doctrines of the Bible, some of the teachings of the Bible, but they do not have true knowledge in that they do not truly believe in these things. But here, it is this knowledge that we need. And the one who does not have this knowledge, it is not good for him. He's in a a bad state. This would be the same as the rich man who does not have integrity, who does not have knowledge, who is perverse in his speech, who is an ungodly man. So it is with the man who has no knowledge. And then a rash man, a man who hurries in his footsteps will err. This being either a man who is rash who makes decisions rashly based upon his emotions, based upon his feelings, who gets worked up in the moment, right? His uh, passions are controlling him. And so he makes these kinds of rash decisions and he says rash things. When a person does that, he's going to go astray, right? He's going to err in his way. Or it could be one who is swift to shed innocent blood, right? There are people who are like this. They are rash or they are quick, in order to do sin and to do evil. And whether it be one or the other, both of them are going to err in their way, and both of them will come under condemnation. Verse 3, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Right? What ruins the way of a man is his own foolishness. And here foolishness is being used as a synonym for sin. It is man's sin that brings about ruin and misery. This is what we read this morning in our catechism question. This is what we studied yesterday at men's Bible study. What is it that brought man into the state in which we are now found? What brought all of this misery into the world? It was man's sin, man's foolishness. The foolishness of Adam, his own sin against God, is what brought all of mankind into this state of ruin and misery. And then individually in our own personal lives, what is it that brings about ruin and misery? What brings hardship and heartache into the home between the husband and the wife, between the parents and the children? What brings hardship within the church? 
It is sin that brings about these things in the life of a man. Foolishness is what ruins his way. And yet, what do people do whenever they are brought into these states of misery as the consequence of their own sin? They rage against the Lord. Instead of blaming themselves, instead of taking ownership for their own sin and the consequences of their sins, they often, they want to blame God. Right? They want to pass it on to him. Right? Unlike Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah became aware of his own sin, he pronounced a curse upon himself. He didn't rage against God and say, God, why did you make me like this? Right? Why is this happening to me? Right? He didn't point his finger at him, but instead, in humility, he took the blame upon himself. But many people, when they experience the consequences of their own sins, when they experience the ruin and misery of sin in this world, they begin to rage and foment against God as if God is the one who is responsible for their miserable condition. When who should they be raging against? They ought to be raging against themselves because it is their own foolishness that has brought them into this situation. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, they are the prophet. or God, through the prophet, is condemning the people because they are raging, in a sense, against God. Ezekiel 18, verse 24, says, But when a righteous man turns from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds, which he has done, will not be remembered. For his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin, which he has committed, for them... He will die. Here again, he's coming into this state of death, of condemnation, right? Of having the curse of God, having God against him. And how did these things come about? Whose fault was it? It's his own fault. It's his own sin, his own treachery, the sins that he has committed. This is what brought him into this state of death. And then verse 25, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? Here, when they hear this or when they see the consequences of their own sin, who do they blame? They blame God. They say God's ways are not right. God's ways of justice and righteousness are not right. This isn't fair. And yet God says, are my ways not right? No, it's your ways who are not right, and it is your own sin that has brought you into this case. And this is a reminder to us that whenever we face the miseries of this world, we should not blame God. Even if the misery that we are experiencing is not the direct result of some sin that we have committed recently. Now that may be the case, but even the miseries that are associated commonly with this life, such as what happened to Job, right? Job his miseries were not the result of any sins that he was committing that God was punishing him for. But even those miseries still are the result of what? They are still the result of sin in the world. And even then, Job cannot blame God, but ultimately the, the blame resides with mankind, with Adam and with ourselves. So we can never blame God when we experience the hardships, the sufferings, the miseries of this life, we should never rage against God, but should always have humility, and we should cry out to God to deliver us from these things. Verse 4, 
Wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friends. This is true in this present life. A person who has wealth has many friends. Many people want to know him. They want to have his favor. They want to be in friendship with him because of the vastness of his wealth. And then the opposite of that is the poor man is separated from his friends. Even the friends that he has no longer want to be around him, right? No one want anything to do with him because he can be of no value to them because of his poverty. And this is common in this present world. And sadly, this also can be common in the church, but it shouldn't be common in the church. The church should not judge people based upon their prosperity or based upon their lack of prosperity, but rather we must judge people based upon their spiritual condition. And if one is rich in faith, but poor in this world, then they should have our favor and they should have our friendship and we should not separate from them. And if someone is rich in this world, but a wicked and unbelieving person, then we should not have them as our close friend, right? Instead, we should separate from them so that they do not influence us toward evil. James chapter 2, this was the problem in the church that James was addressing. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and says, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Here in the church, there is this attitude of personal favoritism. And what is the basis of showing preference to one man over the other? It is money. Wealth, prosperity. The one is rich, and so they're favoring him, and the other is poor, and so they are degrading him. And sadly, this happens in many churches, because even the churches think with the rich people, well, think about all the things we can do. Think about how big of a building we can build. Think about the better salary that I can have, right? Think about all the activities that we can do if we have those with wealth. But we can't be like that. Now, we shouldn't exclude people because of their wealth if they're godly. Nor should we include people because they're poor, simply because they're poor, if they're ungodly. But rather, we should judge with righteous judgment based upon the spiritual condition of the person. Verse 5, a false witness will not go unpunished. He who tells lies will not escape. And then let's also read verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished. He who tells lies will perish. Here, these are one in the same, right? Those who are false witnesses and who tell lies they will not escape. Justice will ultimately come from them, and they will perish as a result of their lies, right, of their lies. Now, this perishing or this not escaping can refer to this present life because many times, even in this life, our sins will find us out. And there are many people who have borne false witness, who have committed perjury in this way, and their lies are discovered in this life, and they will bear the penalty because of their crime, because they have committed perjury. This is Deuteronomy 19. 
Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 20, give the laws concerning what should happen to those who bear false witness, right? Who bear false witness in a court of law. Because if the false witness, if the lie is taken as credible truth and is the basis for which the person is either condemned or exonerated, then justice is going to be perverted. And it's likely that an innocent man is going to be punished or that a wicked man is going to be set free. And this is not good in society or in the world when this happens. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and if he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brothers. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So there, whatever the false witness, whatever his lies would have led to on the person that he is condemning, then that is what should happen to him. If, if he would have been executed for this sin, then the false witness should be executed. If it would be loss of eye, then he should lose his eye. Whatever the punishment, it should go to the one who bore the false witness. And this is how it should be in this life, in the courts, whenever someone is discovered to be bearing false witness. But even if it is not borne out in this life, and there are many who bear false witness all the time, just read the newspaper especially if they are from the East Coast or the West Coast, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all they do is lie. All the time they are spreading lies. Most of the news stations are also spreading lies, and they do this constantly on a loop, nonstop. And they're never punished for these things in this life. But they will be punished one day. And when will they be punished? In the life to come. Because it says in Revelation 21 that all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire. There is a day of judgment when everything will be brought to light. And even if one escapes in this life, they will not escape in the life to come. It will find them out in one way or the other. Verse 6, many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. If there is a generous man, then people seek his favor. They want his friendship because of his generosity. Now, this can be in an evil way, but it also can be in a good way, right? If there is someone who is a generous man, then of course we want to have his favor. We don't want to be against him. We want his grace and we want his favor to be upon us because he's going to bless us and he's going to give us these types of good things. And this is why the kings and rulers of the Gentiles are called benefactors. They're a benefactor because they are benefactors to the people. And it's good and right for the people to want the favor of the king, right? Now, they shouldn't want it in an unjust way by bribes or by denying reality. But if the king or the benefactor is a good man, then it, there's nothing wrong with us desiring his favor and wanting to have his friendship and to have a good relationship with him and for us to benefit from that relationship. This is good and right and pleasing in the sight of God because ultimately, who is our greatest benefactor? It is the Lord God himself. And do we want 
the favor of God or do we want the disfavor of God? We want his favor, right? We want his friendship because Christ is the one who gives gifts among men. He is the one who gives to us the blessings of salvation. So yes, this is true in this life, but ultimately it ought to be true of us spiritually in terms of our Lord Jesus Christ and wanting his favor and his friendship to rest upon us. Verse 7, all the brothers of a poor man hate him. How much more do his friends abandon him? Here again, these are things that are commonly true in this life, right? Even the brothers of the poor man hate him. Even his brothers, where there should be natural kinship, natural affection and affinity, one brother to another, if the brother is poor, many times the brothers will even hate him and even his friends abandon him. A good example of this is Job chapter 19. This is what happened to Job. His friends, his family, those that loved him in his prosperity, they wanted nothing to do with him whenever he came into his misery. Job 19, verse 13. It says, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not hear, or he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am loathsome to my brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? So there in Job's situation, even his friends, his family, those who loved him before, they had no pity upon him. They neglected him. They rejected him because of his poverty. But again, we can't do this because ultimately when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, we are coming to a crucified Savior. Yes, he has been resurrected, but he is also a humble Savior, right? He is a poor Savior. He is gentle and lowly. We cannot reject Christ because he did not come in this exalted state, but rather he came and he suffered and died on the cross. We must receive him in that way. Verse 8, he who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good, right? Those who get wisdom love their own soul. Right? Because the wisdom of God is what results in salvation. Salvation for the soul and ultimately salvation for the body. The soul here being the immortal part of man. And this is the part that we must preserve and we must protect. And it is only through the wisdom of God that we can gain the knowledge necessary that will result in salvation for our soul. So the one who loves wisdom loves his, un, his own soul, and he will find good, right? The one who has understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, verse 13. Proverbs 3, 13 says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, right? The blessed state, right, eternal blessedness, the blessings of salvation are on the one who has wisdom and who gains 
understanding. Then also Proverbs chapter 8, verse 36. Proverbs 8, 36 says, He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Here, this speaking of wisdom. The one who sins against wisdom or who rejects wisdom, ultimately, who is he hurting? Who is he harming? Who is he ruining? He's ruining himself. He loves death, and it's going to destroy both his soul and his body in hell for all eternity. Then verse 9, we've already looked at. So let's go to verse 10. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Here, luxury, this outward condition of comfort, of riches, of pleasures associated with this life. This is not a fitting state for a man who is a fool because it conceals the reality of his heart and of his life and his standing before God. When people see someone with wealth and riches, what do they immediately conclude? What do they generally think about this person and his relationship to God? That God favors him and God blesses him because of the presence of all of his wealth and luxury. And this is why wealth and luxury are not fitting for a fool to possess these things because they conceal the reality of such a person. This was the case with many people, but such a one is Nabal in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Though he was a wicked man, yet he was a very wealthy man, right? He had much wealth and much prosperity in this life. And as a fool, he did not know, nor do any fools, know how to possess riches and wealth in a way that brings glory and honor to God because they cannot hold these things in moderation, but they give themselves over to excess. And then also, they're not thankful to God for the, pos for the possessions that God has given them. So it leads them to become very arrogant and proud, proud toward God and proud toward their fellow man. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. And this will address the second part of verse 10 how horrible it is for a slave to rule over princes. Proverbs 30, 21. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. These are things that are he says these are horrible, terrible situations that occur on this life. And one of those is when a slave becomes king. And this will happen from time to time. A person who has the qualities, the character, right, the abilities of a slave, and yet he is exalted and comes into a position of kingship. This will lead to misery in the whole kingdom because those who are going to rule, they need to have certain traits, attributes, qualities, so that they're able to rule and be righteous governors over the land. But a slave typically possesses none of these things. Now, there are exceptions to this. One of those exceptions would be Joseph. Joseph was a slave, but it was not an evil. It was not a detriment to society for him to become a king or a prince. Because in terms of virtue and in terms of his ability, he was princely, right? He had all of these virtues that are associated with nobility and with those who are in the upper echelon, but even though he was in the condition of a slave. 
But here, when it's talking about a slave, it's talking about one who is bereft of virtue, of character, of ability. He's an idiot, right? And he doesn't know what he's doing. And how is he going to rule over the land? Almost like if you had someone who was, you know, in, had dementia or something as the president of the United States. An old man, right, who doesn't know what he's doing, like we have right now, right? Or a vice president who's completely incompetent of anything good and doesn't know even how to speak without making a fool of herself. This is what happens in many lands, and this is a punishment from God. When people who don't have these qualities, right, they should never rise into these positions of honor, positions of authority and responsibility, right? They're not even fit to be slaves, and yet they become king, and they are able to cause great mischief on the land when that happens. Okay, verse 11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Right? A man's discretion, right? A man with wisdom and discretion makes him slow to anger. Because he has self-control, and he's able to have discretion in various situations, Whenever there is some situation that may give cause or rise to his passions, to his anger, because he has discretion, he's able to be slow to anger in these situations and not to respond in a way that is going to be sinful and detrimental to the good of that situation. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. It is a very glorious, honorable thing for us to overlook transgressions, for us to forgive and to overlook these things and not hold people accountable or not, uh, not have grudges and bear grudges against them on the basis of sins that they have committed where they have sought forgiveness. Whenever someone sins and they ask for forgiveness, then we should overlook it and we should not hold that against them any longer. And the reason that this is glorious and is a great honor upon a man is because who does this for us all the time? This is Christ-like, right? Christ is slow to anger. Christ is long-suffering. Christ forgives us when we commit sins against him. He overlooks our many transgressions against him. And whenever we are doing this to one another, then we are loving each other the same way that Christ loves us. And this is a glory and an honor for us to live and to behave in this way. Then verse 12. The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. The king, his wrath, whenever someone is his enemy, then it becomes very terrifying, right? It is something that leads to great trepidation, and you know that it's going to result in bad for you. This is what happened to Haman. Whenever Ahasuerus's anger was kindled against Haman because of what he had done. And when he found him there uh, grabbing a hold of Esther, it, it made him furious in what he saw. And then what did it lead to for Haman? You know, it led to his execution. He was like a roaring lion, and he came and devoured him because he has the power to do so. The lion being this very majestic beast that is very powerful and who is able to crush and to kill and to conquer any of its adversaries, right? Any of the other animals out in the world. Well, this is what the king can do amongst the children of men. If we have his wrath, it should be a very terrifying thing. But if we have the king's favor... It is like dew on the grass. And dew on the grass is, brings blessing. It is refreshing. It gives life 
right? It does all of these things for the grass. Now, if this is true in this life, then how much true should it be with the King of kings and Lord of lords? Because if we have the wrath of Christ against us, and is not Christ called the lion from the tribe of Judah? So he is compared unto a lion. And if we have his wrath against us, then he will completely destroy us. But if we have his favor, it is like the dew on the grass. So we want the favor of Christ. We don't want his wrath against us because his wrath is like the roaring of a lion and his favor is like the dew upon the grass. And what must be true of us if we are going to be in this right relationship with Christ, if we are going to have his favor instead of his wrath? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We must believe in our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Kiss the Son, it says in Psalm 2, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. We must do homage, we must kiss the Son, we must submit to him, lest his wrath come against us. Verse 13, a foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Here you have these two relationships, right? Two very intimate, close relationships for the man, for the husband. One is the son, right? His son, he wants the son to be a source of pride, a source of strength, a source of happy and blessing. And he wants the wife to be the same as well, to be a source of help, of strength, of happiness and blessing. And whenever there is a godly wife and a godly son, then this is the result. But whenever the son is an ungodly son, then it's not going to result in good and in blessing, but instead that son is going to be the ruin and the destruction of his father. He's going to ruin his reputation there in the town and amongst the family because how could he produce such a worthless son? This is what many people are going to think. Also, the son may ruin him in that he ruins him financially. If he squanders all of his stuff, he doesn't manage it well, right? He's always having to bail him out of jail because of his indiscretion, and this type of stuff happens. So this worthless son brings about ruin and destruction there upon the father, but also the wife. If the wife is a contentious wife, then she is like a constant dripping. The constant dripping in the house, the rain is, is falling and it's dripping, it's dripping, it's dripping. You hear it, you know, over and over and over again. It drives you nuts, right? You, you can't sleep, you can't focus, you can't do anything because this noise is constantly irritating you, grating upon your nerves. And this is what the contentious wife is like, who is constantly subverting arguing, bickering, undermining, right, criticizing, ridiculing her husband, right, that she is in this way, and it, instead of this relationship, which should be mutually beneficial, instead, it becomes detrimental to the happiness and welfare of the husband. Now, again, here, he's saying it in the one way, right, of the father to the son and the husband to the wife, but the converse is true as well. If a godly son has a worthless father, then that brings ruin upon the son. And if a godly wife has a worthless husband, say he's a drunkard and a glutton, well, then that's going to bring misery upon her as well. So it works both ways. So here it's spoken of the one relationship to the other. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 15. Proverbs 27, 15. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain 
and a contentious woman are alike. Here, they just get on your nerves, you know? This is what they're doing with this constant dripping and what is going on. So here, domestic life, right, family life, should be a source of happiness and should be a source of blessing upon us. However, if it is void of righteousness and godliness, it can become very irksome and cause trouble and hardships for us. Verse 14, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Here, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. Many times, wealth is generational, right? It passes down from the grandfather to the father to the grandchildren, and on and on and on it goes. And many times, land and houses and possessions will stay in a family for many generations, and it is passed down from the father to the son. And this is what he means here in verse 14. He doesn't mean this, that these things are passed down apart from the will of God or apart from the blessing of God. Because whatever we have in terms of houses and wealth, where does it ultimately come from? It ultimately comes from God. But in terms of giving it from father to son, right, the father is able to pass wealth and houses over to his son. But who is the only one who has the ability to make a woman prudent. Only the Lord can make a woman prudent. Because naturally, in our natural state, all women are not prudent. They're the opposite of prudent. They're all dead in their trespasses and sins. They are all foolish. And left to our own devices, all of them would be contentious women. So if a man has a prudent wife who is a godly and a wise wife who looks over the affairs of her house properly, who manages the home in a good way, who cares for the children, who is a help and a support to her husband and a source of blessing, who is the direct result of those things? All of that comes exclusively from God. No father can give to his son a prudent wife. Only God can make a woman into this type of a person. And in terms of these blessings, wealth, houses, and a wife, which of the three is the greatest blessing a man can have? It is the prudent wife, right? That's what he's showing here, the greatness of having a prudent and a wise wife. This is a great honor and a great source of blessing that God gives to us in this life. And if we have a prudent wife, then we should be very grateful to God. We should thank God. And also, there's nothing wrong with communicating that to her as well and letting her know that she is a prudent wife and how much you love her and how grateful you are to God for all the good things and the blessings that she brings into your life. Verse 15. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Here, laziness and sleepiness, right? These two things often go hand in hand, right? A lazy person loves to sleep instead of working and being diligent. And this is often the case in this life. When you find someone who is not working and they're lazy and they won't work, they often are fast asleep and they cannot get over their sleep. Proverbs 6, 9. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? There, the sluggard is a sleeper. Instead of working, he is fast asleep. Now, of course, he doesn't mean that we should never sleep. We have to sleep, right? We have to sleep. It is necessary for this life. But we should not give ourselves to excessive sleep. There is a time for us to sleep, 
And there is a time for us to be awake. And when we are awake, we should be working and we should be diligent to do the things that God has called us to do. Right? This is the way that we should order our lives. And typically speaking, though again, there are exceptions to this, people sleep at night and then they are awake during the day and they are working at that point. And this should be true of us in this present life. And when a person is lazy and doesn't work, he's going to suffer hunger. He's not going to be able to buy the food that he needs to provide for himself. So he's either going to be hungry or he's going to be begging and trying to mooch off of the rest of us. Now, ultimately, we have to apply this spiritually as well. Because those who are lazy spiritually, who sleep spiritually, who do not give themselves to the spiritual disciplines, such as reading the Bible, such as praying to God, such as memorizing Scripture, such as attending the services to hear the teaching of the Word of God, the public assembly together. When a person is neglecting these things, and many times, why do people neglect these things? Because of sleep. They can't read the Bible because they can't stay awake. They can't pray because they can't stay awake. Right? They don't come to church because they're too busy sleeping. Many people, this is what they do. Well, they're going to suffer hunger spiritually. They're going to be spiritually hungry, not in a good sense, but in a bad sense, in that they're going to be very weak and anemic spiritually because they're not diligent to attend to the things of God. So laziness is not good for us in this life, nor is it good for us in terms of our spiritual life. But we need to be diligent, and we need to be disciplined, and we need to work hard and seek to overcome whatever laziness is there. So let us then strive for those things. Okay, well, let's pray. I see Bruce back there, which tells me the pizza's here. So we'll pray, and we'll go ahead and pray for our food, and then we can just go ahead and make our way right in for our meal. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, just as we have seen and read, and Lord, especially here in verse 15, Lord, knowing that it is our idleness and our laziness, Lord, and our preoccupation with this present world, Lord, that so often keeps us Lord, from giving ourselves in the proper way to the things of God. Lord, I pray that we would not be sluggish in this way, but rather that we would shake off our drowsiness and that with great attention and attentiveness, Lord, we would give ourselves, Lord, to your word and to prayer and, Lord, to the building up of one another in the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be very healthy, that we would be very fat in a spiritual sense, Lord, well-fed, very strong, and that we would grow into maturity. And so, Father, we thank you for the time to be together today, Lord, to study your word, and we do pray that you would use this word, Lord, to build us up in our faith. Lord, we thank you for this food, and we pray your blessing upon our meal together, and as we take the Lord's Supper this afternoon, may you be glorified in all that we do, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.